This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, Derek here. What I'm going to do is I'm just going to do a reading from one of the chapters of Crack Baby. This is my new book, and it's a sequel to my first one, Motherfuck Lore. Dispatches from a not-so-dead language. And while the first one was really more about my relationship with my dad, this is more about my relationship with my daughter and Irish words based on that. But I'm going to just go straight in. I'm going to read from one of the chapters. Introduction. In March 2016, I was floating in a cloud. My wife and I had just moved into our first home. I had found a literary agent and was on the brink of signing a book deal. And most importantly of all, we were expecting our first child and we already knew it was a little girl. The night she was born, Erin and I wondered together what kind of person our daughter would grow up to be. Clever and beautiful, of course. Would she go to university in Dublin like her father, or Belfast like her mother? She'd definitely start learning to drive earlier than her parents, who both left it ridiculously late. And obviously, she would go to the girls' school up the road. That wasn't even up for discussion. Our generation had been told how useless and pointless Irish was, but now our friends were telling us about their kids speaking Irish to each other on the way home from school. It didn't seem to be out of reach. None of these things seemed to be out of reach. All she needed was a name and a birthday. This conversation would come to haunt me over the next following days. Shortly after Lasserina was born, we were told that she had Down syndrome. This is not information that we had prepared for, and neither of us had any relevant experience or knowledge to hear it as anything other than bad news. Our ignorance cast a shadow over this wonderful event, the arrival of our long-hoped-for daughter. The temptation to give up in the outside world is very strong, but Aaron insisted I not throw away my first serious opportunity to get published, so I pressed down hard my feelings and kept writing. Down syndrome isn't an incapacity like blindness or deafness. It's a different kind of normal. It makes people more vulnerable to some illnesses and less vulnerable to others. Certain developmental milestones can happen later, but not always. As new parents, you discover that you have a baby with an extra chromosome, but you don't yet know how that will express itself. Any time over the next few months when something doesn't happen the way you expect it to, you're not sure if it's because of your child's condition, or if she's just growing up at her own pace. Waiting for the other shoe to drop builds a tension inside you. By mid-June, I was following a ridge road of appointments with specialists, nappy changes and night feeds, a routine that was beginning to feel like normality. With so much going on that made me feel helpless and useless, there was a real satisfaction taking off small chores. We were processing the news of the diagnosis in different ways, 
I think now that the hectic business of meeting publishers to pitch my book was keeping me from breaking down completely. With all this going on, I was really looking forward to meet, having lunch with Francis, a writer friend who had recently returned from Oxford. As we caught up over lunchtime pint near Stephen's Green, I was interrupted by a phone call from my agent. I had an offer for my book. After the phone call had ended, I remember looking around at passers-by, astonished they were just walking the streets if it was an ordinary day. In the way of great friends, Francis was even more excited than I was. Friends can enjoy each other's good news without being doomed to retell it endlessly, which frees them to go bananas when you can't. Once I convinced her that I had no more details to give, we spoke of other matters. Our neighbours, the British, were having a referendum. They weren't as experienced at them as we were, and it looked like this one was going to flop just the way as recent plebiscites in Scottish independence and alternative voting had. Still, no country in Europe over the previous decade had had a successful European referendum the first time round. Ireland had rerun two of them. The next day was like a bad dream. Not for the last time, in 2016. Sadly, my lifelong love of watching election results had become a kind of ironic punishment. Brexit had begun, and I was actively worried about the world into which I brought a child. Perversely, there was a wealth of engaged debate about the value of the European Union and its institutions in the days after the referendum result, much more so than the weeks before the vote. Two things rapidly became apparent. First, the very existence of Ireland had not been part of the Brexit vision. The presence of a land border, the delicate issues surrounding the Good Friday Agreement, the difference between how the Northern Irish public voted and how some of their politicians did, had all been ignored and this blindness would surely come home to roost for the most ardent supporters of leaving the EU. Second, if a famously cautious electorate such as the British could commit such an atrocious act of self-harm in the pursuit of a white nationalist Ternanogue, could the Americans do the same? At this stage, Trump was still a ridiculous and hideous prospect. Among the many, many warnings about his character was an incident in which he performed a grotesque mocking imitation of a reporter with a disability. The Trump and Brexit votes, both taking pollsters by surprise, were attributed to a visceral reaction against the progressive niceties, often grouped under political correctness, health and safety, protections for workers and consumers, sensitive phrasing to replace hurtful and unhelpful words, as well as the trade and migration agreements negotiated to make wars less likely. In American Britain, older voters reached for an idealised past that was out of their grasp. They were like Ushin as returned from Tiernanogue, the home we missed didn't exist anymore, and he can never go back. I held Lasserine in my arms and reflected on all we had taken for granted about the world, even those dark moments of coming to terms with her diagnosis. I had always assumed that awareness of medical conditions was increasing, and those imperfect peace treaties were grudgingly accepted because people who knew how they worked knew that they worked. The idea that there could be an armed checkpoint separating my half-Northern Irish baby from her grandparents was moving from an impossibility to inevitability with sickening speed. If the Irish economy could be damaged by our neighbour's tantrum, would our government choose to cut services for boys and girls like her? Then she ran her tiny fingers through my beard and smiled at me. She wanted me to know something. What do we talk about when we talk about Irish? When we talk about saving or supporting a language, do we mean the musical combination of syllables or something more profound? Something I've been asked a bit since Lostrina was born is why I still care about the Irish language when I have, quote-unquote, real problems now. Surely Gaelga, for all its charms, isn't a hardship issue for anyone. Don't the services that children with Down syndrome require matter more 
and deserve more of my attention. Rather than be led into a simple answer, which make this a much shorter book, I say, there is an overlap between the two, and my heart beats in that overlap. In both cases, with the heritage of minority languages, and with the potential of people with disabilities, there is a resistance against an imposed concept of normality. The idea that people are supposed to look and behave in a particular way, and that people who cannot or do not are some kind of inconvenience. While many of us are normal in many parts of our lives, we all have parts of our bodies and our characters where the world reminds us that we are not normal. Sometimes it's that built environment, something as simple as the height of a table or the placement of a door, can quietly tell you that a room was designed without someone like you in mind. Sometimes it's a word that carries a legacy of assumptions and hurt more familiar to you than the person who utters it. And sometimes it's a taste of your own silence when you listen when people with a platform explain why your wants and needs aren't important, aren't economically viable, or bother someone else. Crack Baby picks up exactly where Mother Folklore left off. It explores the very new and very old parts of the Irish language from a personal perspective. While my first book was steeped in memory of my father and a father-son relationship, this one hinges on the beginning of a father-daughter relationship and how watching a child learn to communicate changes the way you think about language. Crack Baby, Dispatches from a Rising Language, is published by Head of Zeus and is available in bookshops right now in Ireland and the UK. This has been a production of the Headstuff Podcast Network.